Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, stir up your spirit, transform us, set your word on fire from heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 I'd be grateful if you'd grab a pew Bible and turn with me, if you would, to the book of Acts, which is page 909. And as you flip there, you'll notice that you're going to pass many books, some of the very books that were just mentioned. So, you know, we're going to pass the Joseph story, we're going to pass Benjamin's favorite, the book of Judges, many years of sacred history that come before it. And uh, the great New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has compared the Bible helpfully, a helpful analogy to a play with five acts. And so he says, Act 1 is the story of creation, where God creates everything good and beautiful. And then Act 2 is sort of the fall from grace, where sin and death are introduced. And then in Act 3, God um, makes a plan to um, save the fallen world by choosing a people. And he begins with Abraham, and he says, Through your descendants, all nations will be blessed. And as the story begins to unfold, we see that this promise is especially fixed to a particular figure that would come, that would be born of the house of Israel, the Messiah, who would come and fulfill this promise to be a blessing to all nations. Now in the fourth scene, after generations of waiting and disobedience and exile, um, the Messiah finally arrives on the scene. Jesus finally comes on the scene. And so that's really the turn of the story. When Jesus dies, he, 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 um, he accomplishes this blessing for the nations in a most unexpected way. Dying in our place on the cross and rising to give us victory over death. And then he says we have the fifth scene of the play, which is the story of the church, which is the story of the Holy Spirit coming on and empowering Jesus' earliest disciples and also continuing on to today. So it's kind of a cool story because the first act of the fifth story is actually most of the New Testament. And, and really the book of Acts is sort of the, the start. It's the, the first installment of that. But we continue to live out that fifth act. So the Holy Spirit is still moving today. But what Wright says is that the important thing is to note that just as with a, just as with a regular play... You don't sort of change the story halfway, right? So that the, they have to be the fifth act has to be in alignment with the fourth, which is in alignment with the third, which is in alignment with the second. Does that make sense? Right? We don't change it midway. For example, the Messiah who arrives in Act Four of the play should fit all the prophecies and promises that we've heard about in Acts one through three. And likewise, the way that the church lives out, um, like. Act 5 that we're in right now should be in line with what we know of the Messiah in Act 4. And in the beginning of Act 5, the way that God sort of establishes the direction of the play for us. In other words, while the story continues and God's Spirit is still moving us forward, we're a part of God's story, guys. Sacred history is still unfolding. Um, at the same time, we're called to live in faithful alignment with the things that have come before us. And this is the place we find ourselves today at Incarnation. We're a church that wants to be alert to all that the Holy Spirit has for us and for our story in the world today. 
And at the same time, we want to be utterly faithful to the Scriptures, to the story that God has already revealed. And this morning, I'm going to be talking a bit about the vision of incarnation and how it was directly influenced by the book of Acts. These last two Sundays, last Sunday and this Sunday, are what we call core Sundays, where we talk about the vision of the church. We sort of talk about the ministries and some of the reasons why we do things. And uh, if you've ever opened our website and clicked on the vision page, you'll notice three phrases. Um, And uh, the three phrases are this, intimate communion, kingdom community, and grassroots commission. Can we say that together? Intimate communion, kingdom community, and grassroots commission. These three phrases really help to sort of summarize in a succinct way the vision that we feel like God has for incarnation. And really, we believe that these are rooted in biblical ideas that describe God's will for the whole church. So we begin with the first phrase, intimate communion. And by this we mean that we are a community that desires to love God and to experience God's love for us in a tangible way. This is really the natural place to start when we, when we talk about the vision of the church because Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength is the first and great commandment. It's the most important commandment, he said. This is at the center of the Christian life. Everything else is rooted in the Father's love as our source. Last week, we talked about Jesus' life of impact that he lived out, but that it flowed directly from the intimacy that he had with the Father. And really, this reality of intimate communion was something that Jesus intended for all his followers to share in. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. It's on page 911. And here the Apostle Peter is in Jerusalem. He's preaching one of the first sermons that he ever preaches. So it doesn't get much earlier than this. And he says this. He says, repent, therefore, and turn back. Turn back is a good summary of what repent means. Turn back. Turn back to God. You've been walking away from God. Turn back to Him. That your sins may be blotted out. And then secondly, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Do you hear the intimacy in these words? We see it in two ways. First, God wants to renew a relationship that was lost in Act 2 of the play. Right? God wants to renew it, and He does it in this intimate way by sending His own Son for our salvation. Do you know Jesus' death on the cross was ultimately a relational act? God so loved the world that He gave His Son. That whoever should believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life with him. That's how passionate that God was to purchase back people for himself. So passionate that he would send his only son. And so what happens on the cross is a relational thing. But it's not just that the judge of the world has sort of canceled the record that stood against us. Although that's true and really there's no greater truth. But this is not just some sort of cold legal truth or some like metaphysical thing that happens in the heavenlies that has no impact on our earthly experience. No, God also desires that times of refreshing may come for us through the presence of the Lord. 
God desires to give His ransomed people, His blood-bought people, a dose of His own love. Romans 5.5, shedding abroad the love of God in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, which He gives to all who put their faith in Jesus. If we know Jesus, the New Testament teaches that we have become part of the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's really a fulfillment of King David's most intimate longings that we just sang when we were singing Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the fair beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. Is that, wow, that's a, that's a pretty, you know, uh, expansive, that's a pretty amazing vision for intimacy in our life with God. But God actually fulfills it and does even better than that because he doesn't just dwell in the temple all the days of his life. He, when we put our faith in Christ, we become temples of the Holy Spirit. And God dwells with us in a more intimate way than we could have possibly imagined. I hear people say all the time that our country, the United States, is a Christian nation. And there is some measure of truth to this claim. But something that a lot of people don't realize is that um, many of our founding fathers were not really Christians in the biblical sense. They were actually what we would call in philosophy deists. That is to say, they believed that God had created the world and sort of set the rules for nature. But then after doing that, he was kind of a clockwinder God. After doing that... He just let everything just sort of play out. He doesn't interact with the world through revelation or through miracles or through incarnating himself in his son or through dying on the cross for us or anything like this. But biblical Christianity, guys, is not deism. It's theism. It involves belief in a personal God. We believe in a living God who interacts with the world by great miracles, by choosing a people, by taking on flesh and dwelling in the midst of us. And this same God is still active in the world today, working through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if this is true, then prayer isn't just sort of a healthy kind of meditation. right? It's intimate communion with our Heavenly Father. And when we break bread at Holy Communion, it's not just some bare meal. In the words of 1 Corinthians 10, it's a participation in the body of Christ. There's a mystical overlap between heaven and earth that is going on here. We're called to intimate communion with God. When I was a student in college, our campus ministry community had some experiences with the Lord that were so real and so weighty and rich and good that I was undone by the presence of the Lord. It irreparably changed my life. My campus minister's name was Dan Dodge, and uh, some of you InterVarsity students don't know, but he's sort of your spiritual great-grandfather. Um, <laughs> And our vision for our community was this verse from Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, one thing that I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. So this is this pursuit of intimacy with God. And when we decided, hey, we're going we're gonna to take that seriously, and we want to press into the deeper things of God, and we're going to not worry so much about like entertaining people. 
or having like a whole bunch of like complex programs or something like that. Like what we're about is about meeting with the Lord and about helping other people meet with the Lord. When we originally decided that, our small group initially shrunk even smaller <laughs> uh, to about 20 people. And then Carissa and I got to watch and participate in the few semesters after that of us quadrupling in size and seeing many people come to know the Lord, many of our friends, and it changed my life. I came from a, a good, strong home. I grew up in Central Florida, and I had my whole future ahead of me. But I remember being undone by the presence of the Lord and thinking, and everyone in the world needs to know Jesus and experience the love of God. It changed everything for me. It changed my major, changed my career path, changed what I thought I wanted out of life. That's the kind of intimate communion that the early church said was on offer to all believers. And that's what we want at Incarnation. That's why we set aside time every Sunday to meet, to worship the Lord in song, to pray together, to hear His word, to draw together to the table of Holy Communion. That's why there are people who are meeting together every Wednesday at noon. You can come here and join us and we pray for, for people by name and pray for the ministries of this community. That's why, I think it was just last Friday night, that every third Friday there's people who uh, do come and see nights, it's called this, you know, this taste of intimacy with God. Uh, extended time of worship and prayer, and many other ways unplanned that we want to seek intimate communion at Incarnation. But we're not supposed to experience God alone, like all by ourselves, as sort of solitary mystics. You know, in the, note, in the, in the New Testament, there are no Lone Ranger Christians. There's just none. There's none of those. That's not even a thing. According to the book of Acts, we are all called to live life together in kingdom community. And that's the second part of the vision. We use the word community because we're all called to a common life. And we use the word kingdom because we all confess the same king. And we want to reflect his ways. We want to reflect his teachings in the way that we live our lives together. When King Jesus taught on the two greatest commandments, he said that the second is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we're called to love God. We're called to love our neighbors. And Jesus said there's no greater commandment than these. And if that's true, it's also true to say that we learn how to do this. We learn what it means to love our neighbor by living life together in kingdom community. This is sort of the battleground, the testing ground. It's not always easy. <coughs> So as we move from Act 4 in the play, um, the, the, the scene where the Messiah comes, to the beginning of Act 5, to the beginning of, of the commissioning of the church, we get one of the clearest images of kingdom community in all Scripture. So turn with me, if you would, to Acts 2, 42-47. Many of you have heard this passage before. This is the earliest portrait of the church in all of Scripture, it says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now what are the characteristics of kingdom community that we see here? Let me point out six things in rapid fire, although I'm sure you can find more. First, the early church was spiritually devoted. It says in verse 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So for us, that's the New Testament. And to the fellowship, to kingdom community, to the breaking of bread, which most New Testament scholars take as a reference to Holy Communion, and to the prayers. And notice that prayer is made plural because it's actually a reference to the set times of prayer that were going on in the temple. So the early church actually did pray liturgical prayers. They prayed extemporaneously, and they prayed liturgically. We see that in the next chapter, where Peter and John go to the temple at the set hours. So the early church was spiritually devoted. They didn't just come to a meeting sort of once a week and then like forget about the Lord and each other the rest of the week. That's not what the that's not what the kingdom life that that the New Testament envisions for us. Second, we notice that in the earliest days there were defined leaders in the church. So here it's the apostles who are doing many wonders and signs, but as the New Testament unfolds, we learn that there are actually several different office of leaders, and we see it even in the even in the earliest days. Third, regarding money. Now, this this is not the only model we see in the New Testament, but what they did is they set forth a pattern of great generosity and compassion for those in need and simplicity of lifestyle. Fourth, and it's easy to miss this, the early church worshipped at both official times, attending the temple together, and spontaneously breaking bread in their homes. So we see that that when, when there's a movement of the Lord going on, we see some, both sort of people meeting at both official times and unofficial times. In fact, they had a culture of hospitality, of constantly meeting together in each other's homes, which is number five, a culture of hospitality. And finally, six, it says, the Lord added to their number daily. So there was something about their life that was attractive to others, which led to evangelistic fruit. And this kind of life, this kingdom community, I believe remains attractive today. I've heard it said that meaning comes from what you do, but joy comes from who you do it with. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. So we want to live a meaningful life as Christians. We want to live a meaningful life as a church community, but we want to do it together. Amen? Amen. So we've talked about intimate communion, we've talked about kingdom community, and finally the third thing we're after is grassroots commission. Now this is probably the most confusing phrase of the bunch. What do we mean by grassroots commission? I I think the word grassroots is actually becoming more common. It's common enough nowadays. People talk about having like a band having like a grassroots following. Or like a politician who gains supporters on a grassroots level. And what we mean by that is that people are taking personal initiative for something. That their interest is sort of outside of like the official channels or uh, institutional channels. 
So the band's popularity grows maybe without radio exposure. Or the politician's campaign uh, does really well without much campaign dollars, right? We'd say it's, it was grassroots. And the idea is that most of the excitement is rising from the grass. It's rising from the bottom up rather than having to be constantly maintained from the top down. Does that make sense? Another related word for this um, is that we want to be a part of a movement. A movement where the rewards are intrinsic. We're doing it because we care about the cause, not extrinsic because we're getting paid or, or like because like we're trying to impress our grandma who's really Christian or something like that. This is what we see in the earliest church. Jesus' earliest disciples were a grassroots movement. They had Few of them had social standing. There was almost no political power and almost no budget, and yet they turned the Roman world upside down. That's what the people in the cities were saying about them in Acts 17, verse 6, that these, these men are turning the world upside down. It was just as Jesus had predicted when he said in a parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed into the field. It's the smallest of seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. This is the kind of grassroots mustard seed movement that we want to be a part of. Where people are taking personal initiative for the mission of God. Where we don't need everything to be supported by centralized programs always. Where deeds of love and entrepreneurial ideas for blessing the world are sort of arising from the bottom up. Now, on the other hand, I want to say we see in the scriptures that people are not just empowered and sort of sent out willy-nilly without any order, without any leadership. They are commissioned. So we say we want grassroots commission. And if the word, like, grassroots has become more fashionable, the word commission, by comparison, might sound like kind of out of style. To be commissioned is not simply to have a mission but to be charged and authorized with a mission from somebody who is in authority. So Jesus gives the great commission for the church and the successive generation of disciples commissioned new leaders in the church. That's the way it worked. Just to name a few examples in the book of Acts, Jesus commissioned the apostles in Acts 1 to be sort of the overarching leaders of the great commission. They were sort of like proto-bishops in the early movement of the church. They, in turn, as we kind of flip through the pages of Acts, in Acts 6, they appoint seven deacons to care for the poor widows. In the book of Acts, you'll notice that no one ever appoints themselves. I'm going to baptize myself. I'm going to appoint myself. That's just not how it works. And even in the, the most unique case of Paul, who is commissioned directly by Jesus from a heavenly vision, we find if we continue to read on in Acts chapter 9, uh, he's actually, Barnabas brings him to Jerusalem so that he can kind of make peace with the other apostles and they, they can kind of like verify, yes, God has done this work in this life. This person who used to persecute uh, Christians is, is really authentically a believer. And then his, his mission receives an endorsement from them. And when Paul and Barnabas, also called Saul, go out on their first missionary journey. It's not something they just decide to do themselves. They're commissioned. 
Look with me at Acts 13, 1 through 3. Flip there with me real quick. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets, teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now notice how ethnically and socioeconomically diverse the church is already at this early age. And it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit set apart, said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them to. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So notice the commissioning happens in the context of intimate communion and kingdom community. The church, the church was meeting together. They were worshiping and fasting. Notice also that the Holy Spirit is the one who's really in charge, even though he works through human agency. And so that, that's, that's the way that Jesus remains the head of the church even today, is he's, he rules and governs the church by his own spirit, the spirit of Jesus. That's what, that's what the Holy Spirit is called at one point in the book of Acts. Um, and, and, and you'll notice as you read the book of Acts, it's not like the spirit on one side and the church on one side, and they're like, they're kind of in competition with each other or something like that. Like this, the church is always wanting to do something contrary to the Holy Spirit. No, it's, there's an image of harmony. This is the way that it's supposed to work. As Jesus, the head of the church, governs his movement. And then Barnabas and Saul are set apart through the laying on of hands. This is how the early church commissioned new leaders. And this pattern is repeated throughout the rest of Acts. Even as Barnabas and Saul... They go out, they're appointing elders in every city where a church arises. And then you, you also see gifts of prophecy and evangelism and hospitality arising in all these churches, arising more organically. So again, the church can be called grassroots in the sense of being a spontaneous and energetic movement, but it's also commissioned in the sense of being orderly and authorized. So in a sense, we see... Like, grassroots commission, this phrase, is, is sort of like an oxymoron, like jumbo shrimp or something like that. <laughs> but that's how the early church worked. This is how Act 5 in the play looked in the beginning. And we want to live in keeping with that model. And I expect there are some people in this community who feel, like, much more comfortable with, like, order and institution and deep roots and there are people who feel like much more comfortable with something that's like less defined and more movementy and stuff like that. Well, both both parties need to get over it because <laughs> it's both and it's not either or. And I think actually incarnation is is really uniquely positioned to live out this dichotomy because on the one hand we're part of the Anglican Church, which gives us a sense of a sense of rootedness. And the sacraments, the creeds, the rich history of the church, the laying on of hands. In fact, you might not know this, but the laying on of hands in the Anglican church can be traced back all the way to the days of the apostles. And so through successive generations, this is something we uphold. We want to say we live in continuity with, with the fifth act, with the beginning of the fifth act. That's something that we value. On the other hand, we're a grassroots church at Incarnation that emphasizes the priesthood of all believers, that celebrates entrepreneurial ideas and encourages the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And all of this is encouraged very much so by our own bishop, 
who wants us to mature and grow and plant other churches that do likewise. In fact, in a couple of weeks, our bishop, Bishop Neil Labar, will be visiting to offer the laying on of hands, the stirring up of the gifts of the Holy Spirit at confirmation for all who wish to receive it. And we'll talk more about this at lunch after service. But I think this custom, which, which really dates back and is rooted in the apostles Peter and John in Acts 8, it's a powerful expression of these two realities, of grassroots commission. You know, the priesthood of all believers is being affirmed, but it's being affirmed by the church, by the continuous church that traces its roots all the way back. All right, let me summarize and draw us to a close. We began by discussing the story of Scripture in N.T. Wright's analogy as a play set in five acts. And we pointed out that we're still in the middle of Act 5. It's, this is still, it's, the story hasn't finished. We're still living the story, and we're called to live the story with a sense of faithful alignment to what's come before us in the biblical witness. That's why we value the authority of Scripture. We're not going to change the story. We're not going to change what God said about it, but we're going to figure out how to live creatively by the power of the Holy Spirit today. Then I laid out the vision for incarnation in these three phrases, intimate communion, kingdom community, and grassroots commission. And we looked at each in turn and showed how these ideas and practices are actually rooted in the shape of the early church that we see in the book of Acts. And so with, uh, with intimate communion, and we talked about it means cultivating a deep relationship of love with our Creator, who's more than a clock winder. He's the living God who interacts with the world, who bought us back on the cross for a relational purpose, and who desires to bring times of refreshing, even in this life, by the presence of the Holy Spirit. We talked about kingdom community, which means following Jesus together, not as lone rangers or sort of like sort of solo mystics that just have our prayer closet and our Bible and that's it. We're sort of like the Pope of our own spiritual life. We're called to live this thing out in community, in community that reflects the values of the king with spiritual devotion, care for the poor, missional hospitality, and things like this. And lastly, we noted that grassroots commission is kind of an oxymoron, but it helps us to remember that the church is to have movement dynamics alongside of godly order. Now I want to close this morning with a quote that I think shows how these three things, intimate communion, kingdom community, and grassroots commission, really flow together and overlap with one another. In his book about the nature of the church, the household of God, the missionary theologian Leslie Newbegin's he, 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 he loves the mission of God. He's laying forth this compelling case for the mission of God. But he says, there's no mission without a foretaste of the kingdom. In other words, the church never has a mission for the sake of mission. Right? So like, why should you come to know Jesus? So that you can tell other people to come to know Jesus. Why should you tell other people to come to know Jesus? So that they can tell other people to come to know Jesus. No, he says there's actually a kingdom foretaste that God wants for us. So, so when, when, you, when you forgive your parents that have sinned against you, that's a foretaste of the kingdom. When you experience some kind of inner healing, that's a foretaste of the kingdom. When you who are lonely begin to build meaningful relationships, that's a foretaste of the kingdom. When you taste and see that the Lord is good in the land of the living, when you encounter...
encounter him through the liturgy. That's a foretaste of the kingdom. And so we want the mission to go forward so that more people can know Jesus, so that they can know the love of God, so they can be reconciled with one another. So as we read in Isaiah 42 last week, so that so that we can be a part of Jesus's mission of justice to the nations, to set things right in this world. So we seek revival. We seek to be revived by God, that times of refreshing might come in order that the mission might be fulfilled. And we seek the mission because there are places where God is not yet worshipped. There are people who haven't yet had their cup filled and they're living with empty cups walking around this world and they need to know Jesus. So there's no mission without a foretaste of the kingdom. These things go together. Intimate communion, kingdom community, and grassroots commission. In Jesus' name, amen.